Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today's episode is all about Joni Mitchell. Joni just gave her first performance in many years at the Newport Folk Festival, and the worldwide reaction to it was a reminder of just how beloved she is and just how beloved she's become in new generations. And Joni also announced that there's a new box set coming out in September, The Asylum Years, 1972 to 1975, which happens to cover some of her absolute artistic peaks. To talk about her discography around that time, I have Angie Martosia, and during that conversation, to weigh in on some of the stuff he played on. I have Larry Carlton, one of the greatest guitar players ever. He played on a ton of Steely Dan stuff as well. That's him on Kid Charlemagne, for instance, and he played on some of Joni Mitchell's greatest songs. And then I have writer-director Cameron Crowe, who's of course currently working on the upcoming Almost Famous musical, and before he was the director of Almost Famous and Vanilla Sky and Singles, he was of course a Rolling Stone writer, and in 1979 got Joni Mitchell's first interview in years, an interview that anyone who cares about Joni still has to refer to because it's in many ways a sort of definitive account of her life and music. And then finally, I'm going to talk to Jonathan Bernstein, who was covering the Newport Folk Festival for Rolling Stone the other day and suddenly found himself at side stage watching a completely unexpected Joni Mitchell performance. It'll be a great episode, hopefully, and we're going to jump right into it with Angie Martosio. Cold boost you out of mind. I wanted to talk, first of all, about Joni Mitchell as seen through the eyes of younger generations. She's become more and more beloved in recent years, and part of it, honestly, is being name-dropped by Harry Styles and Taylor Swift and some other people. She's just accepted as one of the true geniuses, one of the true living legends of music. And she always was very high up in the Pantheon. But what do you see is the path towards the current way that she's being perceived. I mean, you're right. You could see it in, in both sides, right? There's always been fans of hers and she, for some reason, recently has been saying people finally get it. Like, I finally have fans. She's always had fans. But I really think that kids born in the 90s, for some reason, have really held on to her. And a lot of them are just discovering her. Harry Styles talked about being so crazy of a fan as to track down the person who made the dulcimer used on Blue and invited them over and hung out with them. These young artists really are so inspired by her that they go as far as to track down really obscure people. I mean, Claro named her dog after Joni Mitchell. I really think the last like five or six years you've seen her kind of becoming bigger and bigger. And I do attribute a lot of that to Brandi Carlile, who's made sure she's in the public eye as much as she's willing to be. And I really think that she's kind of like a Stevie Nicks or a Cher at this point, where Harry cites Stevie, younger kids, especially Gen Z, cling on to Stevie because of Harry, but also in general, She's just really cool. And I would say probably around 2015 that started to happen. And Cher, too. I mean, Cher was never this, like, legend that we see her as now. It it took some time. And I think finally, after years of me personally waiting, the world is ready to appreciate Joni in that way. Brandi Carlo. And Brandi Carlo has been a huge supporter and friend for Joni Mitchell. And I love her description when I spoke to her last year of how it took her while she was an adult when she became a Joni Mitchell fan, which is true for me as well. I really related to the sort of mental breakthroughs that Brandy had to get to to become a huge fan of Joni Mitchell. And there's a way of looking at music where you you sort of privilege the sort of gritty in voices and maybe your favorite female singers might be like a Lucinda Williams. Come on now, child, we're gonna go for a ride. 
or something like that, or Stevie Nicks or Janis Joplin, that, that sort of grittiness. And that's what Brandy was trying to sing like early in her own career. Her voice was totally different if you listen to the early Brandy album. And then she went on this whole sort of musical and psychological journey and then wanted to sing more purely and in a way that's sort of more stereotypically feminine. And once she started doing that, it opened her mind to Joni. It's just very, very interesting. We generally may love singers with gritty voices. The pure high voice of early Joni is at least as valid as all that, you know? Yeah. And I think that's another good point. 10 or 15 years ago, that kind of those octaves, that really high voice was something that a lot of young millennials made fun of. And all of a sudden now it's becoming more appreciated to know that just because you sound pretty doesn't mean you're not saying important things. And all, all of her compositions are incredibly genius and were very ahead of its time. I'd be very interested to know about her own relationship to that aspect of her voice because the smoking five packs of cigarettes a day suggests an ambivalence on her own part, you know, and she also said she lost an octave on the Rolling Thunder too. Definitely. And <laughs> I think even for the Roses is really the first time you hear this like huskiness come out. And I think that's, that's the cigarettes talking, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. Or fortunately, I, I don't know. <laughs> Part of it is, I think, overcoming some of the sexism that was always implicit in the ordering of the canon and who was valued and who was not. And I think there's a hunger to rediscover and reappreciate some of these obvious female geniuses. And when you think of an actual sort of genius woman artist, there's really little doubt that she's in that category. I think the earliest in the Joni rediscovery was in the 80s with Prince, who would cite her every chance he got. That's right. In 1985, he told our magazine that The Hissing of Summer Lawns was the last album he enjoyed all the way through. And that was 10 years after it came out. That shows how important she was to him. Yes, exactly. And I want to dig into discography and especially talk about the Asylum Years, which is the subject of this new box set that is coming out. And really, in some ways, the most interesting part of her career and the artistic peak. But since neither of us were born when it happened, I think we can talk frankly about this stupid thing that Rolling Stone ran after her album Blue came out. Yeah, it was this horrific chart that called her the old lady of L.A., And it had basically connections with everyone she had dated, which shows the sexism you were just referring to, that she was merely seen as who she was linked with. Is it Graham Nash? Is it James Taylor? And she was also releasing incredible albums that were praised, but they were not at the forefront of things. In the parlance of the time, old lady meant like girlfriend or possibly a more demeaning way of saying girlfriend. But And so it it reduced this incredibly brilliant songwriter who just made Blue, which is now our third greatest album of all time and the latest iteration of Rolling Stone's list, the 500 greatest albums of all time. It, it, she just made Blue and we and Rolling Stone, unfortunately, in that moment. And, you know, who knows, it may have been one stray editor's idiotic decision, but reduced her to the men she was dating. And that was terrible. And she was understandably not very pleased with that. Quite understandably. Yes. And it took years. And I'm sure Cameron will tell you that he was the first journalist to secure an interview with her after that chart. Since Blue has risen in everyone's estimation. Again, it's it's the one we ranked highest and we almost ranked at highest out of every album ever made. But for contemporary observers, it, it's easy to forget that Blue wasn't the commercial breakthrough. That was two albums later with 1974's Court and Spark. Blue was 
a hit and critical success and a success with fans, but it was not a commercial blockbuster. I think the thing to note about Blue is at the time, what Joni said is that people were stunned, her male colleagues particularly, at the directness and the revelatory, transparent nature of the writing. And she said it freaked people out. Yeah, that's right. I believe it was Chris Christofferson who said, oh, Joan, save some for yourself. Just because she was so <laughs> vulnerable. And as she famously compared herself to the cellophane wrapping on a box of, or a pack of cigarettes, the cellophane wrapping on a pack of cigarettes, just how she was really just completely bared her soul. She was all open. You know, and, and Little Green is unbearably sad and incredibly confessional. Call her green and the winters cannot fade her. Call her green for the chill. You'll see in the asylum year, she starts to confront that a little bit more. But that was really the first time she had written about it and been so blunt to talk about her experience, which, as you know, more than 50 years ago was not something you just talked about. Yeah. And the, and the experience was, of course, giving up her daughter for adoption. And th maybe talk about the title track of Blue a little bit. Hey, Blue, there is a song for you in Conopeer. Acid, booze, and ass, needles, guns, and grass as part of the blue. And a lot of that was James Taylor's addiction to heroin. Even she would acknowledge that these were things that she was very much writing about, as we just said. She had just broken up with Graham Nash, and some of the songs are about that breakup, but other songs are about the relationship that followed, which was, of course, with James Taylor. Yeah, that's right. And she was also obviously summarizing the post-60s hangover of acid booze and ass, of course. But a lot of it was reeling from Graham Nash in a way. She was reflecting on all of that. And I think really for the first time, it was unusual that a woman was just kind of being this honest. And I, I think that's really why Blue is so stunning all these years later. But at the time, it was a little startling, as you pointed out. There's a case of you we can talk about. Just before our love got lost, you said... I am as constant as a northern star. Still probably her most beloved song on there, I would say. A Case of You, as I pointed out. I think a lot of A Case of You is her combining her love of painting and her love of music by saying, I live in a box of paints. She was still, it's really important also to talk about Leonard Cohen when it comes to this. When she says, for A Case of You, I drew a map of Canada. That's what it is. That was after Leonard Cohen. So you can see his influence on there. They had been slightly together, but it was really a relationship relationship of exchanging songs and poetry. And you, you can kind of see his influence on a lot of these songs. And of course, Carrie is her magical trip to Greece with the chef. The wind is in from Africa. Last night I couldn't sleep. Oh, you know it sure is hard. As far as the, the singer-songwriters that she had relationships with, it's such wonderful rev karmic revenge for them to serve as muses for songs when that's the way that they used all, the, all their relationships with women and for songs that in, in the end are at the moment more esteemed than many of the ones they wrote is really kind of amazing. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, her and Leonard stayed in touch and they were pretty, very close friends. I don't think it's as that bad, but somebody like Jackson Brown, for example, which we can get into later, was a little bit different. Yes. Well, Jackson Brown, she described as a narcissist, which a descriptor she used for a lot of people. She also said Sigmund Freud was a narcissist. I'm sure she was right in all cases. An album that for me tends to 
I fall between the cracks a little bit, but has some amazing songs is the follow-up to Blue, which was For the Roses. Yes, I'm so glad you're bringing this up as I am a diehard For the Roses fan, and I think it's very underappreciated. It's obviously, this is the the bridge and the, the clear link between Blue and Court and Spark. But in between that, you know, she was, she spent a year in British Columbia off the Sunshine Coast, kind of reeling from all the success of Blue, and she spent a year in solitude. And I don't think it's often discussed enough. I mean, Leonard Cohen went to visit her and recalled that she was happy there, living in a stone house that she described as like a monastery. She had no electricity. She was reconnecting herself with nature, living in the forest and the rain, swimming a lot. She was reading a ton of books on psychology, and she had kind of a deep dive into Beethoven's music and was really relating to him. It's almost like you can compare it to, I guess, maybe like a Tonight's the Night for Neil Young, where it's really amazing and there's so much more to the story of the album than people realize. I really love the song Blonde in the Bleachers. The blonde in the bleachers, she flips her hair for you. Above the loudspeakers, you start to fall. The way it depicts a rock star, a male rock star, and the allure of groupies. And she does a lot of that kind of vibe, too, about men and their groupies in See You Sometime, which is the start of the second side for old people who play vinyl. Are you caught in a crowd or holding some honey who came on to you? But it's kind of that she even says, are you in some hotel room with some honey coming on to you? And it's almost like she should have just titled this song like To James Taylor. It's really the same kind of attitude and blonde on the bleachers, I would say, she carries into and trickles over in some songs. When she says it seems like you've got to give up such a piece of your soul when you give up the chase, that feels like she's talking about herself too, which is really interesting. Oh yeah, I mean, Um, a big thing in For the Roses, its major theme is that she was so successful at Blue that she was kind of startled by sudden success and fame. And she kept saying this in interviews. I don't think fans know who I am. And if they knew who I really was, they wouldn't love me this much. And she compared herself to a racehorse. That's what For the Roses means. There's this twisted story she would tell on stage discussing that racehorses will get roses put on them and then are sent out to die. I heard it in the wind last night. Sounded like applause. Did you get around It was like some really dark stuff. It's important to note that Asylum was Elliot Roberts and David Geffen, and she had had friendships with them prior, and she kept saying, I was their first racehorse, so to speak. And this is how she kind of viewed herself. She needed to go away for a little bit, reconnect with nature, have some isolation, and then we know what happened. The racehorse thing, she also said that that was also a dig at James Taylor in the sense, you're the horse they're depending on now, but eventually they'll take you out back and shoot you when they don't need you anymore. So she was talking about both his success and her own success, I think. And I would also but, argue Carly Simons, because remember, he married her not long after Joni and James broke up. They talk about a Joni biopic, but the a movie getting all of these people is kind of also what you want. And then yeah, we should talk about You Turn Me On on the radio, which was her biggest hit to date. Oh, honey, you turn me on. I'm a radio. I'm a country station. I'm a little bit gone. It was a direct response to David Geffen wanting a hit, and she did it on command. Yeah, if you just told me that about the song and I hadn't heard it, I probably would think it would be a bad song. That's the beauty of that song is that it's great, even though it's very radio-friendly on purpose. But it has that kind of irony, that tongue-in-cheek, even though she's literally saying, I'm a little bit corny. I did want to talk about the opening track of For the Roses, which is called Banquet. Some turn to Jesus and some turn 
one of the big themes of 70s music was, of course, the hangover of the 60s and the sort of Woodstock generation coming to grips with reality. And there's so, so many great songs about that subject. In fact, one might say, if one, someone who's, who has little patience for boomers might say too many, but I personally can't get enough of them. You know, Kid Charlemagne happens to be one. Jackson Brown's entire discography <laughs> would, be, would be another. Same for James Taylor. And, but I, I would point to these amazing lines in Banquet where she goes, some turn to Jesus and some turn to heroin, some turn to rambling around. Some watch the paint peel off. Some watch their kids grow up. Some watch their stocks and bonds. And, you know, and by the way, some are mathematicians, some are carpenters' wives, 100%. Dylan has, Bob Dylan has acknowledged that the album Blue was a big inspiration for his, for the Blood on the Tracks album, but I think he was listening to For the Roses too, because that's the same construction and the same subject matter. Some are mathematicians, some are carpenters' wives, don't know how it all got started, I don't know what they do with their lives. Busted, Bob. Oh, absolutely. I also love Who Let the Greedy In and Who Left the Needy Out. That's also a very big boomer line to me. And that brings us to Court and Spark. A big thing that happened with Court and Spark, which was released in January of 1974, was drummer Russ Kunkel suggested to her that the way her music was going and the way she played and the way she sang, that it might make sense to work with some jazz musicians. And she also had been listening to a lot of jazz at that time. And that kind of unlocked the entire next phase of her career. And you were going to talk about some of the people who played on it. You can really hear she was, For the Roses has a few tinges of that. She incorporates woodwinds and more percussion, and you can kind of see her veering in that direction. And Court and Spark is her first full-on, like, I like jazz. And it really shows how many hours she spent listening to Miles Davis, which she was doing a lot at the time. And she was also back in a city. She was in a bustling city again, fresh from all of this nature. It was a giant exhale. And she wanted to be with musicians and she wanted more than just herself. You know, she had been, obviously musicians had appeared on her albums on Blue and For the Roses, but she incorporated a full band here. And that was the LA Express. And it was new for both of them. I think Joni Mitchell was also saying like, how can I let them be at the forefront of this while I'm the singer? And I believe the LA Express was more like, what do we do with this person? She's a singer songwriter. We've never done this before. It was it was new for both parties. And that's why I think it's it almost is like a one giant audition and it really works. And here's guitarist Larry Carlton briefly on the sessions for Court and Spark. I just remember um, that Joni had demo tapes and she played the songs for us all standing around in the control room. And then Tom and I on the next listening started jotting down chord charts and everybody was making notes. And then, to the best of my recollection, we all went out in the studio and just started playing the song with Joni doing a rough vocal. And it came together, and I think one of the real blessings of that whole session for her uh, was that all of us had played in the studio together so much that we kind of knew each other's uh, vibe and strengths. I mean, me with the Crusaders, with Joe Sample, Max and John, even before I came a session player, had already done hundreds of sessions together. They were a team in the studio scene. So that's how we did it. We just went out and started running the tunes. Everybody started finding their parts, and then we cut it. This one and Hegera are probably my favorite. Joni albums, it's not exactly an outlier opinion to love this album. Like I said, before Blue got to the reputation it had, this was the one. This was the huge commercial breakthrough. Oh, absolutely. I mean, something like Raised on Robbery. Hey, honey, you got lots of cash. Bring us out of all and we'll have some laughs. 
I would say I much prefer radio over Raised on Robbery. It's so singly and there's a reason why it did so well. I mean, she had been on the charts before, but this was really her first hit. Free Man in Paris is such an incredible song and it's so obviously about David Geffen. I was looking at the Robert Christgau review of Court and Spark. All he would dare to say at the time was, I just want to know if it's about David Geffen. I mean, of course it's about David Geffen. The way I see It's so specific, but she was writing as an adult and writing for adults. And I think that's one thing that that strikes me when I listen back to her albums at this point. She was doing something that not a lot of people are doing now, which is there's no way that any teenager could relate to one word of Free Man in Paris, you know, and she could not give a shit, clearly. I also love talking about the relationship. She was living with him at the time. She had just come from British Columbia and they were kind of roommates for a very short period. And there's lines like you said it's way more than like a lover or a breakup as most pop songs at the time are. It's stoking the star maker machinery behind the popular song. I mean, I don't really think you can get more like adult than that than writing about like an executive you work with. Free Man in Paris was actually in the final season of Girls, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it's, it's the second episode, I believe, of the last season and it's that famous part where Marnie breaks up with her boyfriend who's a drug addict and at the end of the episode, she drives away with Lena Dunham in the car to Free Man in Paris. And Lena had always said she wanted some Joni song in that scene. But I think it really works here, especially as they're driving away. There's a song, People's Parties, and, and she's one of the only people who had, there's a guy named Jack in the song. And you have to, given what we know about her life at the time, you can actually ask the question, is she really referring to Jack Nicholson? Cry for a song, beauty. Cry for Eddie in the corner, thinking he's nobody. And Jack behind his joker and stone cold brain. Yeah, this was her re-immersing herself into the L.A. scene. She goes from, I'm living in a forest, and also I love cocaine and parties. It's her with Warren Beatty she started to date. It was very brief, but I think he really leaves his mark on this album because a lot of the L.A. scene at the time was his circle, just like Jack Nicholson. And you can really, just reading these lyrics, it's it's literally like a, an exact scene of a party in L.A. And Down to You is an incredible song. Oh, I love Down to You. I think it was also just like this train was what she she played at Newport recently at that set and it, she did the guitar solo to it and I almost cried watching it. The latter half of Court and Spark is so good and not talked about enough because the first half obviously with Help Me and Free Man in Paris and People's Parties, it's it's very poppy, it's very light and cheery and side two kind of goes a little bit mid-tempo. I think that's actually something that I like. I like depressing stuff so. And we I talked with Larry a bit about Help Me and that is her biggest hit ever. Biggest hit ever. Car on a Hill. I've been sitting up waiting for my sugar to show. I've been listening to the sirens and the radios. I mean, that kicks off the second side, and that's literally her relationship with Jackson Brown. It starts off with, I've been sitting up waiting for my sugar to show, and she's talking about Jackson Brown. But that whole lead up, I believe there's saxophone. It's like, it's really the LA Express in the intro, and it kicks off, and she's just talking about waiting and waiting and waiting for your boyfriend to show up and pick you up. And she takes these little moments and makes it into a song. And obviously, as we know, he would leave her for a model named Phyllis. I believe he's the only person ever to break up with Joni Mitchell, which is why it really bothered her so much. She, she wasn't really used to not being the one to end it, and that kind of pissed her off. We should also note that Joni is not the most modest. On For the Roses, the final track on there is a tribute to Beethoven, who she related to more than any artist that was around at that time. So you can kind of see where her head was at. 
And yet she was still influenced by others and she still covered Twisted. My analyst told me that I was right out of my head the way he described it. He said I'd be better dead than live. I didn't. Which I think is pretty incredible. Also, it's so random to, to end Court and Spark that way. And I think it just shows her genius where she kind of done this entire breakdown of her romances and how she's dealing with stuff socially. And then she ends it on Twisted. And I think it's also good to say, too, that she was seeing a shrink. She literally says, my analyst told me I was out of my head. And that's she was seeing a shrink at the time and really immersed in psychology. And she was talking to also a Hollywood shrink who knew exactly who she had dated. In general, I mean, she was starting to push the boundaries of the whole singer-songwriter thing. Her chord structures, her melodies were really not based in folk or rock. They started to become much jazzier and sometimes classical influenced. And she was just working with a different musical vocabulary than someone like Bob Dylan, someone like Leonard Cohen. Or, or even someone like James Taylor or someone like Jackson Brown. They were all working in a much more sort of standard folk-derived portal and melodic vocabulary. And she was off on her own. And I think that led to her being unique. It led to this huge hit. It was also sort of auguring what was to come as her, as her music and her structures became more complex and more unique is that they started to really challenge listeners, which wasn't the goal, but that's where she was headed. Here's what Larry Carlton said about that. I thought it was great. And yes, the listener was probably being challenged, but I don't think that was Joni's motivation, just like it wouldn't be my motivation. I think she got in a creative space and decided, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I want to write right now. I know for me, if I get in one of those spaces, my last thought is, I hope people enjoy this, but I like this. But, you know, Neil Young is almost like her brother in that sense. They're both Canadian. They both suffered from the same polio outbreak. They're both Scorpios. They're like lifelong friends. And he also went through this phase of being like, I'm not going to keep doing Harvest. I'm not going to keep doing what you want me to do. And I'm going to do what I feel like doing and go from there and use that as my guide. And I do think the hissing of summer lawns is really the jazz rock that she incorporates is unheard of at the time. And I think that kind of shows where she was headed. Neil Young, who wrote some kind of short essay for the upcoming box set of Joni's Asylum work seemed to see her as a kindred spirit. And just as after his album Harvest, he went through a period that he called the ditch period, where he moved away from commercialism and experimented. Joni did that after Court and Spark. But, you know, the thing is, Neil, like all these other guys, didn't have this the vocabulary that, that Joni had. He was doing weird music, but it was still very much in, like I said, in the sort of standard rock vocabulary, you know. And if anything, his music was getting simpler rather than more complex. Tonight's the Night is practically all one chord. Early in the morning at the break of day He used to sleep until the afternoon so Joni took the, I mean, it's true. It's great, but it's not, you know, it's not sophisticated musically the way that Joni became. The Hissing of Summer Lawns in 1975. And as you said, this is where she, this is where she really seemed to be challenging listeners. Although I think listening now, and especially, and I was, I was saying to you earlier, Angie, that being my personal brain was kind of rewired years ago when I, when I became a Steely Dan fan and I became a jazz fan. And so I'm much more open than like when I was a teenager to jazz harmony harmonies and more sophisticated stuff like that. I think that if you're kind of just a rock and roll folk person and you're presented with this stuff out of the blue, your ears literally can't handle it. And I think 
that's what happened at the time with Hissing of Summer Lawns. It just, I think, sounded weird to some listeners. Whereas now to me, it doesn't even sound, it's not even that experimental. It's, it's just a great album. And it literally is jazz rock. And I think at the time that was probably startling. But if, you're right. If you hear it now, it, it's just kind of like, here's some jazz stuff in this. Like, I like jazz. And I think that's pretty special. My favorite song is Don't Interrupt the Sorrow. Don't interrupt the sorrow. kind of encapsulates her entire discography where she says, since I was 17, I've had no one over me. And I think that really kind of sums up Joni Mitchell and her songwriting where, like I said, she's not modest. She knows she's broken a lot of hearts and she's moving forward. The track Harry's House was mistakenly thought to be an inspiration for Harry Styles' new album title. That completely aside, it's, it's a pretty stunning song. Deep waves on the runway As the wheels set down uh, that song is incredible. I believe it's almost like seven minutes or something. It's it's pretty, it's a wild record, I will say. And I will also point out that even if that wasn't directly, that's not what inspired Harry Styles' album. She did give a salute to it and was like, awesome, love that, before finding out it wasn't true. <laughs> I was just going to point out that in France, they kiss on Main Street. Downtown, the dance halls and cafes feel so wild you could break somebody. She's still singing about France, whether it's in Paris on Blue and Court and Spark. But here it sounds much more mature. You're right. She's not really saying like, I'm sitting there reading Vogue and Rolling Stone and David Geffen's going on this street or that street. She's actually observing the city life and what it means to be social and to be kissing in cars and kissing in cafes. This box set actually covers only the, the first half of her asylum years, and it ends with Hissing of Summer Lawns. But I, I did want to touch on Hajira because it's such a fucking brilliant album. Among many other things, it has this incredible fretless bass playing by Jaco Pastorius who is, you know, one of the most amazing bass players who ever lived. It's sort of like if you wanted to show someone what a fretless bass sounded like, you would play this album. It's only on a few songs, but it really dominates the sound in some weird way. There's a lot of examples, but Coyote is pretty amazing to hear Jaco. No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studio. And you can even see her performing it famously with Dylan and Gordon Lightfoot and like Roger McGuinn in the Rolling Thunder documentary. I was talking about Karmic Revenge and Joni whipping out that song, which is one of my personal top five mm. Joni songs. I think it's a stunning song. But Joni whipping out that song when she's sort of at her peak and it's not clear to anyone else in the room is the Karmic Revenge on Dylan for what he did to Donovan during the Don't Look Back sessions. It's so amazing that someone finally turned the tables on him in that moment. I never even thought of it like that. Mostly I just think of Sam Shepard because that's kind of who influenced the song. But that's really, that's really true. It, it is, in fact, about Sam Shepard, who was someone she was having a relationship at that time. So that song is incredible. Furry Sings the Blues is incredible. And Amelia has possibly some of the most incredible lyrics of any song ever written. It also has a really striking guitar part from Larry Carlton, and here's Larry talking about playing on that song and that album. Tell you where they've gone. They'll tell you where to go, but tell you get there. Yes, I was using my volume pedal. The way Joni edited my parts together and then kept many of the parts that coincided together at the same time in a tune was brilliant. It actually became a little Larry orchestra behind her many times and I was I was just freaked out when I heard what she had done with my parts. I was obviously very comfortable with the more sophisticated harmonies 
which was thrilling to me to go to a session and have it be more sophisticated than just a TV theme or, a, you know, another pop tune. As you said, it, it was right in my wheelhouse, man. I loved jazz since I was 14 years old and loved harmony. So all of that guy got to use, but in a pop setting. I think Hajira, it's like its own era to me. And then you go into Don Juan's and then obviously you go into Mingus and it's, it's a totally different chapter. And I see it as a completely different time away from the hissing of summer lots. I think that's fair. And then a lot happened in her yeah. life between those two albums, and including she abandoned a tour, mm. right? You know, so, so you're right. And I think we'll have to talk collectively about Hijira in more detail and that whole period. But I just have to mention the album because it is so stunning and prescient and unique and just a, a masterpiece. It's funny, we're going through naming which are the good songs. We're just naming every track on the album. <laughs> so that's, that's normally that's what it's a, like to talk uh, about Hijira. Uh, Angie, thank you so much for joining me for a tour of this section of the Joni Mitchell discography. Thank you. So next up is my late night conversation with writer, director, and Rolling Stone legend, Cameron Crowe. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I'll take you back to, I guess, 1979 for a minute. So Joni Mitchell hadn't done, wasn't just that she hadn't talked to Rolling Stone, she had really stopped doing interviews altogether. And you got her to talk. What was the process of even just making that happen? Charles Mingus really is the catalyst to all of this. I think Joni was one of the big ungettable interviews at the time. Bob Dylan would go in and out. Sometimes he'd make himself available, but... Joni was off limits, particularly to Rolling Stone, because of some stuff that had been printed about her in the magazine. So what happened was she, as she got close to doing an interview, the word kind of got out that she was trying to figure out which way to pivot and who to talk to. And it, it wasn't even obvious who she would do the interview for. And I, I knew because I'd written about CSNY and and had, had actually interviewed her when she was off limits, by mistake, really, because I had been interviewing Bonnie Raitt in a dressing room at the Troubadour, and she dropped in and was just effusive and talking, and 
the next day I got a call from Elliot Roberts, her manager, saying, well, I heard you uh, have Jolin on tape. And I'm like, yeah, she was so great. And he goes, yeah, she's so great, but you can't use it because she's not being interviewed right now. And if you weren't writing about her, you were writing about someone else. So just write about someone else and you don't have to quote her, right? And, and I was like, well, I'd love to quote something. She was talking about Bonnie and that was good. He goes, you know, you'll be in line. And when she wants to talk, I won't forget this. This was years earlier than 1979, and I thought for sure that's never going to be remembered, even though I was writing about some of the other artists that Elliot managed. But as we got closer to, to the Mingus album coming out, and it became known that she was going to talk to somebody to kind of put the Mingus album in context. When Charlie speaks of Lester, you know someone great I knew that I was a possibility. I knew also that there was a writer for the New York Times who was kind of a friend of hers who actively was campaigning against her talking to me. And <laughs> his theory was, if you're going to talk, you don't have to talk to me, but I'd love if you talk to me. Just don't talk to him because he's too young and um, you could do better. So this, of course, if you know Joni Mitchell, which I, I came to know her better later, is the best way to get her to do something. Tell her no. So this gentleman actually pushed her in my direction. And I got the call from Elliot saying, guess what? You're up. Come and interview Joan for whoever you want. And I, I, I said, how about Rolling Stone? He said, well, you know, good luck. And we began our conversations. And she was the best interview that I've done to this day for the magazine. I couldn't believe how she spoke so casually, but in, I, I think I wrote this, like in third draft, she, she had, it was so honed and beautiful, but spoken casually with a cigarette, like the greatest dinner conversation ever about her own stuff. And because she hadn't talked about it in 10 years and plus, it had all been in her mind, like she had written it in her mind, but it was all there and it spilled out. And I, I then knew the, the greatest secret of getting a good interview is to be there when the person is ready to talk and she was ready to talk. <laughs> True. It is uh, certainly the very model of sort of the Rolling Stone interview in all caps. You know, it, you, you get the stuff on the Mingus album, which is, I you know, I had forgotten rereading this at, it's important to remember that Charles Mingus, of all people, in you know, in his declining days, sought her out. Yeah, it was his idea. I mean, it, how extraordinary is yeah. that? Yeah, amazing. Um, but then you really get her looking back on her whole career and responding to criticism in a very sharp way. Yeah, I think one of my favorite parts is that she says she was less upset about the infamous old lady of L.A infographic or whatever the hell it was yeah. in, in Rolling Stone, the, the terrible sexist thing that was done at the time. But she said she was less upset about that than Stephen Holden's review of, of uh, Hissing of Summer Lawn. Correct. Very Correct. funny. She, uh, did, she called up John Rockwell after Travel Log, I think, got a difficult review and, and read him the riot act and debated the review. I mean, I love the people that say, I should have picked up the phone and called that guy. Joni is like, 
I'm picking up the phone and calling him now. You can watch. And, and so she, yeah, she's very opinionated, but yeah, she was amazing at that time and, and still is really fun to interview. In the intro, you said it was over three days. I mean, what was she, she was smoking, obviously. That was something she did a lot of. What was she like just sort of as a presence at that point? Powerful and um, fun. I mean, she, she says, she might even say it in that interview, I'm a good time Charlie. You know, people think because I've written songs for lonely people that I'm sad and depressed, but basically I'm just looking for a good time or a good confrontation or a good conversation. Just, you know, I, and I like to dance. And it's true. She's the lady with a hole in her stocking dancing. She's, she's that person. And the great thing is she's like that with anybody. Somebody she meets in the dentist office or somebody that comes up to her and has a story to tell about something that they felt because of one of her songs. She feels like everybody has a story and she loves characters and she is a character. So she's probably one of the easiest persons to interview who's rarely available for interviews. You did something very bold. At some point in the interview, it's the lead of your story where you, you had overheard these two teenagers debating on what would be a good album for a party. And yeah. one of them held up her, her live album, Miles of Isles. And the other one said, nah, it's got good songs, but it's kind of like jazz. And you actually relayed this anecdote yeah. to her. They pick a um, cheap which, trick record, I think, is what happened. Yes, they, they ended up right. They ended up picking cheap trick. I mean, honestly, <laughs> let's be honest, better choice for a party, at least in <laughs> relayed this story to her and, and she thankfully had a sense of humor about it. Oh yeah. She she has a great sense of humor and is laughing a lot, which was still kind of a revelation when I did that interview. She was also very happy in her house. She loves her house. It's where she has the Joni's jams to this day. The pool means God. a lot to her. It's God, it's the same house. Wow. Same house, and it's not dissimilar from, from the way it was then. And what's amazing is, and you can see it in some of the interviews she's done in her living room, her art is everywhere except for one painting. And it's of a kind of an obscure English artist who she just loved this piece and got it. But everything else is hers, and it's her loved ones, pets, you know, landscapes, boyfriends, partners, collaborators, Mingus. And they're all purposely curated around her house. So a person that loves solitude, but also loves people can pass through her house and feel like she's among all of her friends, which is the coolest explanation for why the house is the way it is. If you walk into it, it is both a museum of her artwork and also the most comfortable kind of salon where stuff happens. And yet, yeah, to jump ahead closer to the present, you've interviewed her, I think, a couple times in the past few years. And you, you got her first interview about her recovery from her aneurysm. How, how is it being in her presence now? And you actually recently got to hang out for a Joni Jam, which is pretty cool, <laughs> to say the least. Yes, I had, I had no instrument, so I hid <laughs> in the corner, basically. It's... You know, I was a little nervous when I knew I was going to interview her for her archival set that she's really invested in. For somebody that was shy about her early songs for a long time, 
she's really into curating her work. And so she began this, this series of vinyl, just like curating all of her early stuff in chronological order. So when I came to interview her for that, I didn't even know if it was okay to talk about the aneurysm. But towards the end of the interview, I just asked her about it. And she had no problem. She just said, I have Irish blood. I'm a fighter. I'm fighting my way back. Watch me go. I have this. And it was so thrilling to see her attitude. There's a direct line to Newport from that answer because she had it in her sights to sing again, to walk again, to be told no and to be proven right when she says yes is kind of the theme of her life. So it's been amazing to watch. And I think, you know, Brandy Carlisle taking the, the Joni's Jam onto the big stage at Newport really was opening up her life to everybody. And the emotion people felt was what you felt at a Joni's Jam, really, where you just saw her starting to sing starting to play. And even before the aneurysm, she had been toying with absolute retirement and had said, I think I've lost my muse. But she's probably had the most productive, inspiring pandemic of anybody <laughs> you can imagine. And because she's got an open heart and uh, inspires a lot of loyalty from her friends, she had the best kind of help. And finally, I guess, you know, obviously in 1979, you held her in high esteem, as did many people. But there is a sense, you know, especially in the albums after Court and Spark, as you discussed with her, that yeah. she was being less appreciated. People were starting to become baffled by her music, some of which now doesn't seem baffling at all I know. To, many, to many people. But, know. you know, and, and then also she did face a certain amount of sexism and being underestimated and and. So now, of course, she's been rediscovered by a whole new generation. Yeah. So, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about both that perception now and then for you, what it's like to see her be picked up by this whole new generation. Well, I think it's, it, it goes right back to the fact that she's, she's always produced herself from her second album. I mean, she's told the story. Paul Rothschild, who had produced The Doors, was in there to like, you know, her first album did okay, you know, and they, they were like, okay, well, here's your next shot. Let's get you a hotshot producer. So they get Paul Rothschild, who produced The Doors and was still producing The Doors, and he did a couple songs with her. And because Joni dances, you know, she sways when she plays. It's kind of the, you see her doing it on just like this train at Newport last weekend, you know, so she's swaying and playing one of her songs. And Rothschild comes in with gaffer's tape into the studio where Joni's playing. He's like, you know, this is a powerful directional mic. Are you aware how a directional mic works? You're all over the place. You're dancing and uh, it's not working. Why do you do that? And she said, well, I, I sway when I play and I'm, I kind of was influenced by Buffy St. Marie. And, and he's like, if you sell as many records as Buffy St. Marie, drive a stake through my heart. I am taping your feet to the floor. So he does that, and he gaffers tapes her feet to the floor. They do another song or two, and then he comes in at the end of the day and says, you know, I'm going to leave for two weeks and, like, save the Doors record that they're trying to do across town without me. And he leaves, and she turns to Henry Louis, the engineer, and says, can we finish this ourselves in the next two weeks? And he said, I think so. And they did the next 
14 albums together. So she's used to calling the shots in what she hears. And what she's heard is what's on all these albums. And, and the fact is that she's not really jazz. She's kind of, she calls it swing, but she's her own person. And to, to over answer your question, the fact that it's kind of genreless and that there's so much in the stuff that she's done over the last 20 years, the path of being a Joni fan leads you through like the high, the thicket where where it, the stuff is tougher to wrap your hands around. But once you do, I mean, go, listen to Dog Eat Dog live in a Farm Aid performance that she does in 1985, solo piano, Dog Eat Dog. It's Dog Eat Dog. I'm just waking up. And you listen to that. First of all, it could have been written yesterday or tomorrow, and it's got no frills on it. It's just her singing this song. I, you know, check it out, because everybody that's kind of into blue and then finds their way to Hajira and Court and Spark, of course, and stuff like that road takes you to these albums that, that are filled with nooks and crannies with challenging, amazing stuff. And I think the, her being a fan of Joni Mitchell takes you to places that are that are always filled with discovery and they're authentic like she has no regrets about any genre that she tempted herself into no it's she stands by all the stuff and you sense that so i think the younger musicians hear a kind of joyful defiance and then the songs too i mean you can see it in the newport festival footage brian she has a childlike appreciation of what's going on right now and it's really kind of wondrous the look on her face is completely her i mean she she she's having the experience that few people have that came that close to dying she actually can see what it would have been like for people to have lost her and express how much she means to them. And it's enormously moving to her. I mean, that Both Sides Now performance is just an yeah. all-timer. My, my God, man. <laughs> yeah. So welcome to Jonathan Bernstein. You were covering the Newport Folk Festival for Rolling Stone, and you, when you got there, had no idea that you were about to witness the first Joni Mitchell performance in a million years. Yeah, I had no idea. Really, you know, up until the maybe 30 seconds before Joni Mitchell takes the stage, no one in the audience knew that she was going to be there. She was in my head as someone that was a possibility once it was announced that Brandy Carlisle and Friends would be the final closing set this year. As Brandy Carlisle talked about on, on this podcast, Joni has been quietly having these Joni jams at her home where musician friends have come and, and played with her. So she had a, an aneurysm that left her having to relearn a lot of things, how to play guitar, a million things, and, and she's made this incredible and inspiring recovery. So the idea a few years ago that she would actually be performing on stage was inconceivable. She told CBS that she had to relearn how to get out of a chair even, and here she was performing. And so 
you got to be on the, you ended up somehow on the side of the stage. We've seen some of the videos. What was it like in the moment? It was completely surreal. One of the most remarkable and stunning and really moving live performances that I've ever seen in my lifetime. The thing that is harder to come through in these amazing YouTube videos, unless you're sort of like meticulously arranging the entire set in order, you know, is really the sort of the progression that Mitchell made herself on stage throughout the set was really striking and moving. The progression of the set, which kind of moved from these first few songs in which Joni is tentative and hesitant and is singing and performing in a more sort of complimentary way to people like Brandy Carlisle and Taylor Goldsmith to sort of these oldies, which is where it felt like she really started to open up and get comfortable. Songs like Love Potion Number no. 9 and Why Do Fools Fall in Love. that had the sort of lightness and obviously the nostalgic connections for her to sort of the end of the set where she has kind of fully taken over and is fully in command of these like heartbreaking and profound reinterpretations of both her songs and other people's songs like Summertime. You know, and she hadn't played a full concert since the year 2000. And so 22 years, there'd been a couple of appearances, but nothing, nothing for many years, really. And so here she was, what was the crowd reaction like? I think people, there was a lot of disbelief that, you know, the moment she sort of walked on stage and during the set, I mean, I think that the audience's reaction was what, what so many people's reaction has been in the few days after watching it. A lot of tears, a very emotional reaction reaction to see this person perform in this way. What did you take away from Brandy Carlisle? I, I know she must have been very moved. Everyone on stage seemed like they were, when Judd was crying during both sides now, everyone seemed very moved. Yeah, it was, it was striking as, and yeah, I mean, during both sides now, I think one of the things that I was just looking over some of the notes that I wrote in my notebook, and I, I wrote down at least two or three musicians on stage that were crying during or after that song. But Brandy Carlisle, I mean, you know, as you know, obviously she's talked to you on this podcast about what Joni Mitchell means to her. She has kind of made it a pretty core, maybe one of the most core parts of her sort of public artistic identity over these past few years when she's really become a star. Like her connection to Joni Mitchell and the importance of Joni Mitchell, not only to her, but to sort of popular music. And so this really did, you could tell that for Brandi Carlisle, who's kind of lived life of one sort of unbelievable moment after another these past few years with various heroes, that this really felt felt like the culminating thing that had sort of like the summation for her and the sort of thing that she had been, whether she knew it or not, whether Joni knew it or not, whether anyone else knew it or not, that kind of she had been working towards on Joni's behalf. I remember reading after that Taylor Goldsmith from Dawes, you know, saying that his favorite song of all time was Come In From The Cold, which was one of my favorite performances of this Joni set. All we ever Yeah, it was a song that I didn't know, actually. But you can really, you know, hearing these younger musicians play Joni's songs not only illuminated Mitchell's catalog, but it really showed you how much her catalog had entirely impacted and influenced all these younger songwriters. Yeah, and it was great to see for one day the Newport Folk Festival become the biggest story in music in 2022. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's very cool to see how they sort of pulled off this historic element. Joni Mitchell had performed at Newport, I believe it was 53 years prior. 
16, in 69, and she also performed there in 67, so she had this deep history with it. And to, yeah, to, to bring it, to make this moment that clearly resonated. It's funny the way some of these videos have been filmed. Winona is kind of like very prominently featured in the background because she's sort of sitting right behind Joni during the set. And like you were, like you mentioned on Both Sides Now, she's sort of really choking up. I think in the, in the beginning, when Both Sides Now first comes on, you can kind of read her lips saying like, I don't think I'm going to make it through this song or something like that. And it, it just became, in terms of the that's reaction, and, and because it was almost exclusively through YouTube, sort of like when Nona had sort of on stage almost a stand-in for the audience's reaction in a really kind of fun and interesting and kind of random way. Put Winona on stage for every show so we can hear reaction. <laughs> There's, of course, like the trope of artists singing their songs they wrote when they were young. Finding new meaning. I'm thinking of someone like John Prine. Hello in there when he's 70, like a song he wrote in his 20s about being an old, lonely person. But this was sort of... this To put this performance of Both Sides Now merely in that category seems almost reductive. It was just a... It was just, a, just an absolutely, like you said, extraordinary performance of a piece of art and, and a statement on someone's older material and, and how that meaning can change and deepen and strengthen over the years. And that's our episode for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.